When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to It Happened in Hollywood. I'm your host, Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. This week, we're going to be revisiting the movie that turned Winona Ryder into a major Hollywood star. All that and more on It Happened in Hollywood. So I don't know what generation you assign yourself to, but I am firmly in the Gen X zone, um, and proudly so. I like being a Gen Xer, and if I was to describe what Gen X is, and I see it debated a lot on social media, but I would say two things. We were slackers, <laughs> and we were nihilists. The less you cared, the better, and the darker your outlook, the better you fit in. And this movie, I think, really kind of encapsulated and launched the whole Gen X ethos for my generation. It came out in 1989, and I was a teen living in Montreal, and uh, I went to go see this at my local art house uh, trying to be cool, and my mind was kind of blown. I had no idea, having been raised on kind of John Hughes' teen comedies, um, which I love, make no mistake, they're amazing films, but suddenly it flipped the entire paradigm on its head, and this movie was pretty much as dark as it comes. It had teen suicide, it had murders, it, it just uh, it had a mean girls type politics, and it really turned the whole high school playground into more of a battleground. And that movie is Heather's. It, of course, would go on to uh, launch Winona Ryder, who made it right after she did Beetlejuice. So the, the, the pairing of those two films really shot her into the stratosphere. And uh, she became sort of the poster girl for the whole Gen X generation. And, um, you know, in films like Reality Bites... But uh, Heather's was her launching pad, and isn't she great in it? The film was written by a guy named Daniel Waters. He was uh, born in Ohio, but uh, he actually went to my alma mater in Montreal and lived in Montreal for a while, uh, and then moved to L.A. and did the Tarantino thing and worked at a video store. And while he was there, he wrote this opus. It was a three-hour script, and uh, he thought Kubrick was going to direct it. That was the only director he envisioned. Of course, you know, things got a little more realistic. He, he whittled it down to under two hours. And in the end, uh, a young director named Michael Lehman 
was the one who boarded the project and saw it to fruition. And what a great job he did. So Michael is our guest today, and he can tell us a lot more about how Heathers, starring Winona Ryder, and which also launched the career of Christian Slater, came to be. Welcome, Michael Lehman. It's a real honor to meet you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Was this your first feature film? Absolutely my first feature film. I was just a couple years out of film school. And I have to say, it made a huge impact on me. This came out in 1989, so I would have been uh, about 18 and living, or 17, living in Montreal. And um, this movie kind of changed my worldview of what a a mainstream Hollywood movie could be. Good. That's (laughs) why we were trying to shake it up a bit, even, you know, back then, because there there had been... Uh, quite a run of teen movies, you know, John Hughes and all those sorts of things, which we liked, but we wanted to kind of undercut them to a certain degree and reflect a darker a darker teenage experience that I think many of us had. So let's go a little bit backwards to, uh, you said you were coming out of USC. Yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew up in San Francisco, and okay. um, I, worked, I worked actually in film when I was young, uh, worked for Francis Coppola. And ended up at USC Film School, and I made a short there that got me an agent, and uh, that basically led to doing Heathers. And the short uh, had a provocative title? It did. It was called The Beaver Gets a Boner. (laughs) (laughs) It was written by a guy named Redbeard Simmons. That was his name. Uh, He was very funny and had a great, great sense of humor, and it was a very subversive movie for USC Film School at the time. And it similarly kind of turned like the the the, the educational tropes of uh, on their head because he was a guy who owed uh, drug money, and he so he got a scholarship to, to college to pay off his drug debts. Yeah, you know, <laughs> at at USC Film School, where they I think to this day control the material that the students are allowed to make for their thesis projects for their final films, they approve the scripts. It's a very difficult process. Um, and Redbeard wrote a script that was essentially a parody of your classic USC student film, which is about a kid in a town who has aspirations, is stuck, doesn't know whether to take that scholarship or not take that scholarship and move on in their lives. And the, and the professors at USC said, you know, we, we, we only want to approve movies that are within the realm of experience of these young wannabe filmmakers. So... Every other USC student film was an insipid variation on that <laughs> trope. And so Redbeard said, well, I'm going to write one about a kid who needs to uh, get a scholarship to pay off his drug dealer. <laughs> and we went from there. And uh, thankfully, the the faculty at USC was receptive to this. They got a kick out of it. They supported it, or many of them supported it. Some of them didn't. But um, we were able to make the film. And it, it caused a a kind of a minor splash when it screened at the at the SC student screenings because it was different in tone than anything else that had come out of SC at least for a while. It had a little punk rock uh, spirit to it. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> and that was not. It just wasn't done at that school at that time. Okay, so that and so that started getting circulated uh, around town, or did it get outside of the USC uh, bubble? Yeah, it did you know that they? they I think they still do it today. They, they have industry screenings of the student films. And back then, because there was no internet, really, or nothing to, to spread these kind of things around, an event was made in which the, the films were screened, mostly for agents and young studio executives looking for talent. 
And when the beaver gets a boner screened, it got a pretty good response. And I was approached by a whole bunch of agents, which was really fun and unexpected, and uh, ended up signing with Bobby Thompson at William Morris, who was good at finding talent. Wow. Okay. So you really did well, your short. Yeah, it did well. It It didn't really get me directly a ton of work right away, but it did lead really directly to Heather's, I guess, because... Bobby became my agent. She showed the film to New World Pictures, which at the time was no longer Roger Corman's operation, but it was run by Bob Ramey and a couple other guys. And they had a young executive named Steve White who had been a groundling and had a good, really good twisted sense of humor. For a moment, he was head of production there and he saw The Beaver and he said, oh, that's good. I'd like to work with this kid. And that led to me, I don't think I, I didn't have a deal there, but it led to me being able to pitch them ideas. And, and I did my first two movies for them. Terrific. Okay. So, and now there's this script floating around town. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Dan Waters, the, the brilliant Daniel Waters, who really is an incredible writer and, and a great guy, was friends of mine through Larry Karaszewski, who was also my classmate at SC. And Larry and... Uh, uh, Dan had gone to high school together. Dan kind of hung out with the crowd that I was part of. I didn't know him very well, but I knew him. And the story had been that Dan was working in a video store and writing this opus for a couple of years called Heathers. And when he finished a draft, which was, I think, 250 pages long, he showed it to Larry. Larry showed it to his agent at ICM, who said, yeah, I don't think anybody's going to make this movie. Apparently, she didn't get it. So she didn't want to represent Dan. And I remember, I think it was Larry who called me and said, you know, Dan Waters has this script. It's really great. Um, He's looking for an agent. Do you think you could show it to Bobby Thompson? And I said, yeah, sure, let me read it. And I read the script, and it was it was long. I mean, it was really funny and very twisted. It was Heather's, but it had even more, more episodes of mayhem in it. And... Um, I thought it was really great, and I showed it to Bobby, and she immediately flipped for it and chose to represent Dan. And Denise DeNovi, who was a young producer who I knew socially, um, was also a Bobby Thompson client. So she put us together, and Denise and I and Dan took it to New World after Bobby tried to get you know mainstream A-list directors to direct the movie, but nobody nobody bought. <laughs> okay, a couple questions. One, so you guys were in the same scene. Uh, where were you guys hanging out at the time? Like what was the what was the scene back then? Well, there there was a, a film school scene that was very counter to what USC film school had been about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all felt like we wanted to make really interesting films, we wanted to make independent movies, and USC had been geared very much as the mainstream to sort of gateway to mainstream Hollywood. They, they taught conventional techniques. They, they treated people really badly, saying, well, if you're going to work in the movie industry, you need to have, know how to deal with rejection, and nobody's going to give you any compliments, and nobody's going to give you any help. It was a kind of a miserable environment, but a very, very good filmmaking education. So we, Larry, um, Larry and a bunch of other guys lived in a house down at USC that I think they called it Club Real. And it was just a trashy old West Adams house. And everybody would hang out there. 
And uh, there were a bunch of us who were good friends. It was a great class at school. I mean, you know, Larry and Scott Alexander, his writing partner, they came out of that class. Jay Roach was in that class. Uh, even independent filmmakers, Greg Araki was in our class. Oh, wow. um, we had a, a bunch of really creative, hardworking, twisted people going to school together. <laughs> um, you and, know. and partying together. Partying together, yeah. For, for sure, it was... Um, I think I graduated in 1985, so maybe, yeah, 85, 86, somewhere in there. You know, those were days that were a little bit, a little bit more fun than, than other days. <laughs> <laughs> and Dan, the screenwriter, yeah. um, what can you tell us about him? I had noticed he'd gone to McGill, which was my alma mater. Yeah. Um, but what else can you say? I know he's kind of uh, brilliant, eccentric. I, I know that he, ha he envisioned Kubrick as his first choice to direct Tathers. Yeah. So what else can you tell us about his personality? Well, uh, Dan is extremely funny. He has that, the razor sharp wit that is in that script is Dan Waters. If you talk to him, he's a constant source of amusement. Uh, very bright guy, grew up in Indiana and um, son of a college professor. Dan went to McGill in, in uh, Montreal, and I think he studied English literature, um, he very interested in film. He's the one person I know who, to this day, sees literally every movie that makes it out into the world every year. <laughs> Those people amaze me. Yeah, I know. I don't know where. <laughs> I don't know what he does with the rest of his time. But, you know, sometimes at the end of the year, I'll say, did, did you see this film? He goes, well, yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't, wasn't able to see that one. But he sees everything. And um, he, uh, you know, he, he's, he's a... He's an odd guy, but he's a very funny, accessible. He's a great guy. We're still very good friends. And he he didn't go to USC film school. He was I can't remember where he was living exactly. I just he was around, you know. I I knew him from around from all the people that we hung out with. And, and he did the Tarantino thing before Tarantino. He worked at a video store and then made it in Hollywood. Yes, he did. He did. He's the pre-Tarantino. <laughs> I've always wondered, I don't think he knows Quentin. He maybe he's met him. I have always wondered what the feeling is um <laughs> you know between right. the two of them. Uh, but um yeah, Dan's an original. He also he doesn't drive. <laughs> he's lived in L.A. all this time. He doesn't drive a car. So if you see him, he's either going to take public transportation or these days an Uber or you go pick him up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think I need to track this guy down. Oh, yeah, you need to track him down. He's also he's a great interview because, um, you know, as as is evidenced in his scripts, he's great with one liners. He, he'll give you plenty of quotes and all that sort of thing. I'm, I'm not I'm not like Dan in that way. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So. I know that you, you know, obviously had to whittle it down to something more approaching, you know, a, a traditional film and length. Yeah. So uh, I, was that difficult to to get him to let you do that? No, he he's remarkably flexible for a writer who has as much vision as he has. Mm -hmm. it, he never was, well, he wasn't happy about it, but he he didn't resist notes the way a lot of writers do, who might say, I wrote this brilliant script. I don't want to change a word. I'm sure Dan didn't want to change a word. I, I remember my first conversation with him about it was I I probably only halfway got what the script was. I was reading it just to just to get it to an agent. And I just wanted to see what what it was about. And I remember reading it as quickly as I could read a 250-page script. <laughs> and I was 
pretty fresh out of film school, but I'd worked as a script reader for a while. And I said, Dan, you can't, nobody will read a script of this length, or if they read it, and if they love it, they're still never going to make it at this length, not uh, not a comedy. And he got that. And um, uh, I never told him what to cut. That's the thing, is that he's 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 pretty good about um, having some perspective on his own material. So I said, you know, you got to figure out which of these strands of story are least important to you, and we'll cut it down. And I, I'm sure he took it down to about maybe 140 pages, maybe 120 pages. I can't can't remember, mm-hmm. but he he brought it down to a manageable length. I'm pretty sure that not positive, but I'm pretty sure that what Bobby Thompson read was a shorter version than the full length. <laughs> the very full length one. Now it would be a six part, uh, you know, streaming series. <laughs> and he could easy. Have, yeah. He could have his whole vision laid out there. But um so let's talk a bit about what it is about. Um it's you mentioned uh, John Hughes before, uh, which yeah, I think now with time has been accepted as one of our greatest filmmakers. But maybe then, peop, you know, he was the mainstream, and people were getting a little tired of uh, the glut of Hughes teen movies coming out. Yeah, it's complicated because John Hughes was not a really a mainstream guy. You know, he came out of National Lampoon. Right. He was his humor was very irreverent. Uh, some of the best stuff that he did that myself and all my friends liked were things that he did for the lampoon or you know that were that were way out there so um and I had a kind of peripheral involvement with that group because I worked when I worked for Coppola, I worked on the outsiders oh, no and kidding. was around when i was had a very junior job, but I was around when all those young actors were coming in to audition. I was around for the shooting of the movie. There was a, a young woman named Michelle Manning who got very involved inside of that generation of, of um, teen films. She worked, I don't know if she worked directly with John. I think she might have. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure she did. But she also worked with Sean Daniel at Universal, who was involved in making those early John Hughes movies. So I always felt like it's not that I was part of that crowd by any means, but I watched it come together and was supportive, you know. But at the same time, I always thought John Hughes's high school movies were strangely kind of nostalgic and sweet about high school, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the reasons why people love them. But they, in spite of his own dark humor, those movies did not go that far. You mm-hmm. know, they, they kind of danced around like serious issues and the language was mostly pretty clean. Um, so what distinguished what Dan was doing is he, you know, he had characters that were killing each other. <laughs> and he had people saying things that were pretty outrageous, but not out of line with how teenagers talk and think, even if he coined language that was maybe a little better than the way they, they actually phrase things. Yeah, I would go so far as to say that Heather's created a new genre, which is uh, of uh, th- these um, high school Films as sort of almost like battle movies. Yeah. Um, and you should, certainly would never have a Mean Girls without Heathers. And uh, I don't even know if you'd have Clueless without Heathers. Um, it, it got into the the um, the sort of more complicated warfare between teens. Not that Hughes did not explore it, but like you said, I think ultimately uh, he had a, a very a glossy vision of what teenagers, what their character was. Yeah. And, and Heathers said uh, no actually they're pretty horrible people <laughs> right they do they do really bad things to each other and the and the social interactions are quite often mean spirited and destructive and uh you know tremendously awful <laughs> whereas you know John Hughes it was like 
the the conflicts were a little bit easier to swallow. And he he wrote Hughes wrote a lot of very amusing characters, you know, like Ferris Bueller, that sort of thing. Very different than Heather's. I mean, I don't think when we were making Heather's, we were well aware of John Hughes movies, but we didn't think that we were answering them or responding to them or doing anything particular in relation to those films. We just thought they didn't show the kind of high school that we wanted to show in our movie. Right. And then, um, of course, the other thing is that it's uh, suicide is a big uh, running you know, theme of the film. And uh, if if it's even possible, it, it somehow makes suicide uh, funny. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, we, <laughs> we got in a lot of trouble <laughs> from a lot of people. Uh, people said, you know, you can't make a comedy about teenage suicide. And we would say, we didn't make a comedy about teenage suicide. We made a comedy about the issues surrounding suicide and the response of parents and teachers and the world to the the ways in which kids deal with their issues so um and the kind of deifying or, or, or saintliness of the suicide victim and how everyone you know wraps themselves around that yeah um and uh i know that when the writer said that there was a very similar situation that happened at her high school right as the script kind of landed in her lap that made her realize i have to make this film yeah yeah so winona really connected to the material she was only 16 at the time and so she was in high school and she she got it and she was she was just um gung-ho to make the film once she read the script she really really got it so let's talk about the uh, the casting so new 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 world gives you um how much money to make this film well i think by the time we finished we we spent close to 3 million dollars which was you know pretty decent for a small non-studio film at the time i don't know if they were planning on giving us quite that much. They were they wanted to keep it very limited. You know, the, the economics of the industry at that moment were driven a lot by the growth in the home, home video business. So a company like New World wanted to build up a library that they then could sell as uh, home video cassettes, you know, and this was just exploding at that time. So a lot of movies got made just because they needed they needed the product to put in the video stores. Um, and the companies that made it could make a lot of money off of those things. So there was a just a moment where there were slightly less stringent demands on the content from the people who were financing these kind of movies. Did you get the sense they believed in this project, or really was it just like feeding a content pipeline kind of thing? I think at the highest levels of the company, they were feeding the pipeline, and they were, and then uh, they were happy if it was good, but. If it wasn't that good but could feed the pipeline well, they were good with that. I don't think that the amount of money that we had to make that movie really reflected any particular interest in the script itself. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> Steve White, as I said, he really, he really, really got the humor of the script, and he really wanted to make the movie. He made us change some things, which we were not happy about, but there wasn't anybody else who was willing to make the movie with the kind of enthusiasm that he had. And um, his bosses, I think they gave him, the, he was allowed to green light under a certain budget. Uh, I don't know what it was. I don't know exactly what the what the restrictions were, but he basically said, if you can make this for the amount that, that I can green light, you're fine. <laughs> and this is the guy from the Groundlings. Yeah. So, of course, he loved the script. And, you know, he was like, this is one long dark sketched. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Go he, for it. He did. 
But you went above and beyond. I mean, in terms of the way the film looks and having it streams for, uh, for Amazon Prime subscribers for free, so you should check it out. Uh, it looks amazing. Um, it's a beautiful, beautifully shot film. I know that uh, some of your camera operators went on to work with Spielberg, and um, it really is a handsome film. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. Um, it It was my feeling had been... Because I'd kind of come up working around a lot of good filmmakers and watching them work, I was a you know junior guy. I didn't really have anything to do with the filmmaking, but I would watch it, and I and I always felt like when you see a conventional comedy, it's brightly lit. It's not shot in an interesting way. The camera's at a very standard level. The camera doesn't move much. There's not there's not much stylistically in your conventional Hollywood comedies. To um, the, there's not much opportunity taken to use cinematic tools to tell your story. And I felt like, well, why not? You know, Stanley Kubrick's movies are really funny. You know, the, the comedies that he did, and they're stylish. And they're stylish in a way that works for the material, doesn't take away from the material, doesn't overwhelm the material. So for me at that time, I thought, really what I want to do is make a great-looking movie that functions as good cinema and is as funny as it would be if I just shot it like a John Hughes movie, you know. Um, and Mitch Dubin, who was the camera operator, had been, he worked uh, at Zoetrope with me. He was a junior camera guy, and he'd gone to New York and worked as an operator, eventually first uh, first assistant and then an operator for Ed Lockman, who's a great cinematographer. Francis Kenny, who was the DP on Heathers, had been Ed Lockman's operator before Mitch. They were friends. I met Francis through Mitch. And... Um, I called Mitch up and I said, hey, I've, I've, I've got a movie. Can you believe it? I'm directing a movie. <laughs> I want you to work on it. Um, and I think he was still in New York at the time, but he, he was he still had a place in California. He could come out. And I said, I need a DP. Who do you like to work with? He said, Francis is really good. And um, I said, great. So I met Francis Kenny. I hired him. I hired Mitch. John Hutman, who was a production designer, was brilliant. He went on to have, he's had a great career. Um he was young. He was, couldn't have been 25, you know, had worked for some really good production designers. And we we felt like we could make a good movie, you know, if we were judicious and economical and focused on trying to make it look good. And the material itself, I think, I think it really lent itself to style, you know, without I, I personally don't like things that are overstylized just for the sake of style unless they're really, really good and really fun to watch. And generally speaking, they don't have material that is as strong verbally, you know, as what Dan wrote. Um, well, I would say that maybe USC was part of what gave you all these great tools and instincts as to who to hire. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> you have to hand yeah. it to them. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, that that's true. That it, it was funny. When I chose to go to USC, part of my thinking was, I want to know how to make real you know, classic Hollywood-style movies. I want to have that in my toolbox. It doesn't mean I want to make those movies. And right. in fact, in in my career since then, the one the movies that I've made and television shows I've worked on that are that embarrass me the most are the ones that are the most conventional because I <laughs> actually don't like it that much. But right. I learned how to do it. <laughs> you know, so there was a sense of knowing how to use the tools well and have and and USC always provided a very strong visual storytelling education. So th for me, that was important. It was good. Uh, but I've always been a, you know, a photographer. I've always been interested in these sorts of things. I, I feel like cinema is very visual and 
yes, it's also verbal, and television is maybe more verbal. Verbal, it's sometimes a, a point of conflict for me when you know, you know, I'm not really into just doing talking heads. But in this case, Dan Dan really conceived of a movie that had all sorts of great visuals built into the script. So once again, I'm gonna I'm gonna nod to Dan for a lot of that. Now, Winona Ryder, um, when you when she was cast in the film, she had already done Beetlejuice, or was she filming Beetlejuice? Or she she was she had just finished filming Beetlejuice. The thing that happened was we were looking to cast the film, and obviously the casting of Veronica was going to be super crucial. And Dan had had um, Jennifer Connelly in mind when he wrote the script, and. Um, uh, so, and I love Jennifer Connelly. I thought she was fantastic. She would have slayed it too, yeah. Yeah, you know, she was, <laughs> she, she's great. And so we said, all right, well, what do we do? How do we get Jennifer Connelly? And we made an inquiry to her agents and her parents, because she was also young, and we got rejected pretty quickly. So we, 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 none of us had any connections there. There was nothing we could do. So we were turned down on that front. Uh, New World did not say you have to cast a movie star, but they did say we would prefer that you cast somebody that people have heard of. And they went to Justine Bateman, uh, interestingly, because Steve White knew her dad, I think, and, um, and felt like he, he wanted to take it to her. And we said, fine. You know, she, she, she felt like she could be good. She'd done some other interesting films at the time. Wasn't, you know, wasn't our first choice necessarily, but, but we, we were willing to go there because we thought she, she would do the job. And maybe surprise us and be incredibly great. She turned us down, so <laughs> you know we're like, okay, uh, who else? I had seen um, I'd seen a movie called Square Dance, I think it was, and I thought uh, Winona had a small part, and I had actually written a script with a with a friend of mine that was about a young girl who worked as a maid in a in a motel, and. I when I saw the movie Square Dance, I said that girl could be the lead in this other script that I was writing. So I took note of her name, and I brought it up. And Dan Waters, who back then also saw every single movie that was ever made in any given year, knew all her work. <laughs> and he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, she's really good. She's really good." And um, I brought her up, but we were told she didn't really have any. She didn't mean anything to New World. I don't think they knew who she was. Then uh, Bobby Thompson, our agent showed it to Michael McDowell, who was a writer client of hers, and Michael was co-writer of Beetlejuice. And he, uh, I think he's no longer with us, but he was a very, very funny, dark-humored fellow. And he read the script and flipped and said, Winona Ryder would be perfect for this. We're making Beetlejuice now. Can I show it to her? And Bobby said, Michael wants to show it to this girl, Winona Ryder. I said, yeah, please. He showed it to her on the set of Beetlejuice. She read it. She said, I have to do this movie. I need to do this movie. We got word of that through Michael. We went out to her agent, who was uh, Andrea Eastman at ICM. Very good agent and represented a lot of, you know, Winona was, at, I think at that point, seen within the industry as an up-and-comer. Um, Andrea was very protective and said, there's no fucking way you're going to do this little, you know, dark, teen movie made by nobodies for New World Pictures when I've just got you on a Warner Brothers film. And Winona said, no, I'm, I'm going to do this movie. And she overruled her agent, who really didn't want her to do it, apparently. And, um, 
and she came in and she met with us and I was I was very positively inclined anyway. When when she walked in the door, it was like, oh my God, this girl is going to be, she's better than anybody else we've even thought about for the role. She tells a story that that agent got on her hands and knees and begged her not to do the film. Yeah, that may be the case. So she, <laughs> did, she did tell us at the time that, that her agent just really, really thought it was a terrible career move. <laughs> right, right. Um, I can't remember if I, I knew her agent a little bit and thought she was great. I may have had a conversation with her, maybe not. I may probably had conversations with her later. But um, yeah, she was outspokenly opposed to went on to doing the film. Amazing. A teen suicide comedy, and the, her agent didn't want her to do it. Yeah. How, can you believe that? Yeah. How, <laughs> how is that possible? Well, it's also, you know, it was also New World Pictures, and right. it was a first-time director. And, and it, we should say that New New World, uh, if you could just explain a bit what New World is. Well, yeah, New World was Roger Corman's company. Right. He He formed it in the 60s or late 50s or whatever to basically feed drive-ins and, you know, in a chain of, of low-rent movie theaters. And he made very, very inexpensive classic films, you know, up through the 60s that were great. And at some point in the in the late 70s, I think, um, or, or maybe early 80s, Roger had sold the New World Pictures name to some investors who were going to turn it into something similar, but something else. And he was no longer doing it. But in everybody's mind, New World Pictures meant Roger Corman. Right. And low-budget, super low-budget exploitation films made for 20 cents that looked terrible, but that, <laughs> you know, launched the careers of a whole bunch of really good filmmakers and actors. Including Scorsese. Yeah. And, uh, and isn't uh, your former boss? Yeah. And he go yeah. through there? Coppola made uh, Dementia 13 for Roger Corman. <laughs> yeah, it was a, you know, people would get out of film school and they go work for Roger and he supported them and he was a, really a mentor to, to a lot of people, but he gave them no money. He just said, okay, I got $50,000 and we have this set from this Gladiator movie <laughs> that I made last week. Uh, you know, you have a week. <laughs> you can use the short ends of film from some other from other things we've shot and I'll throw together a crew for you, make the film. And that was how they did it. So we have Winona on the set halfway through Beetlejuice, reads the script. She's like, this is, I gotta do this next. And then she does your film. She yeah. Gets, she gets her way. And, you know, it's some of the visual, uh, you know, fancy in your film isn't totally out of step with Beetlejuice. It's certainly the, like, the, the uh, dream sequence uh, funeral um, is very Beetlejuicean, kind of. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, Tim, Tim Burton and I were coming up at the same time. Um, he was not an influence for me because I, I wasn't looking at his movies that way. But he was somebody, I liked his films. I think I remember seeing Pee-wee's Big Adventure and I thought, yeah, that's pretty funny, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. And certainly to launch her career, I can't think of two better films. She's like a goth in the one. This one, she's popular, but still killing people and kind of goth at heart. And uh, it seems like, like I, I would assume these are the two films that made her the superstar that she became. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because they really drew a lot of attention to her. And she's great in both films. And she was great in a lot of things that she did. Um, and to this day, doing Stranger Things, I guess she's still still out there. She's still doing it, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, in rewatching Heather's, her performance is just next level. I mean, it's really very real. And you really um, feel for her in certain moments. And she, she, I think she kind of makes it work. Would you agree? Yeah, I agree completely. The thing is, is that the Dan's dialogue is very stylized. And it 
is it's extremely clever and it's great, but it's also not exactly the way people talk, but right. it's not dissimilar to how teenagers talk. And I felt that the best way to make that work was to play it as real as possible, that it was going to be plenty funny. There was never any reason to, to emphasize the humor or to try to make, you know, to burlesque it or make it something that, you know, where you're winking at the camera or, and I didn't want it to be arch, you know, the, the dialogue could be done that way. And I'm sure in the hands of other filmmakers, it might have been done that way, but that's not what I thought was right for it. And and Dan agreed with me. And so with Winona, what I loved about her is that she she played it the way you would play a dramatic role, you know, with full commitment, full emotional commitment. And the humor just sort of flowed from what she did and how she did it. And that was great. She got the joke. Mm -hmm. which was kind of great. She was a very, very bright 16-year-old. She understood where Dan was coming from. She understood what I wanted tonally, and she was on board for that. Some of the other actors, I don't think they were as self-aware nor as uh, artistically aware as she was. <laughs> and then it was a matter of just sort of, oh, you know, we'll, we'll herd them in this direction. We'll make sure they do it this way. Um, but she really got it. You know, she was a good collaborator in that regard. Dear Diary, Heather told me she teaches people real life. She said, real life sucks losers dry. If you want to fuck with the eagles, you have to learn to fly. I said, so, you teach people how to spread their wings and fly? She said, yes. I said, you're beautiful. God, come on, Veronica. What is your damage, Heather? Well, let's talk about one of her co-stars, Shannon Doherty, plays one of the Heathers. Yeah. Um, who, of course, goes on to great success in Beverly Hills 90210, which I would call the thing that Heathers is parodying, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, just as a quick aside, at one point when the brand new Fox television network was being put together, I got a call from Denise and Dan saying, uh, Fox is making a new television network and and somebody thinks we should go pitch Heathers as a TV series. <laughs> right. And I said, oh, oh, I don't know what that means. Uh, and Dan wrote some sort of outline and we made a proposal for a series and we went in and pitched it in the first weeks of the Fox network and they turned us down to make 90210. Funny. <laughs> and then as another aside, UPN, the Paramount Network, which no longer exists, did make a Heather's show right before the pandemic. And that was so controversial that that never made it to air. I hear they they they, they pulled it because they didn't they felt it was too hot to show. Yeah, that's what I heard, too. I actually I never saw it. I probably should track it down and take a look. Dan Dan saw it. He said he 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 said they changed a lot of stuff to make it more modern. Did you see it? Have you seen no, it? No, I've just heard things like, for example, the Heathers are now gay men now, right. it, or gay people. And um, I think in the current Twitter landscape, where it's all about identity politics, people didn't like the idea that a gay character could be a bad person, and it became very black or white, and it it lost. I think it was a it was a product of its time, and in the current era, something like Heather's couldn't exist. Right, there's no way it could exist right now. 
<laughs> but um, it probably couldn't exist then either. But you just went ahead and it, did it. That's pretty much true. You people say to me all the time. They go, "Oh, do you think you you know could you make Heather's now?" I go, "We couldn't make Heather's then. <laughs> we <laughs> right. got it made, but it's not like right. oh, this is easy. You know, we didn't <laughs> we didn't waltz in and say read this funny script. Let's make this film. It right. was we were lucky enough to find the right people in the right place at the right time to sort of be able to say yes, and we squeezed it through. You yeah, know? and that's you know so many of my favorite movies and so many successes and you know are are those lightning in a bottle moments and that's sort of what this podcast is about the, the times it does happen yeah it's so rare i mean it, it's funny i've developed plenty of things in the intervening years that that were really good that mm -hmm. would have made great films but they were too dark or they i couldn't get the right actor and you know when you miss your opportunity to make one of these things chances are it goes away forever you know sometimes it goes away for a while and comes back but Chances are once people have once somebody has made the judgment that we're not going to make this, it's really hard to get people interested, especially if it's something that is, um, you know, out of out of the ordinary. So back to Shannon, I I, I was uh, watched at one of the featurettes on on one of the, the DVDs, and I, she said that she came out of the first screening crying. <laughs> yes, <laughs> because it wasn't the movie that she thought she was making during the filming. Do you remember that? I do. Uh, it. The whole thing was kind of baffling to me. Shannon came in and auditioned, and the casting directors, um, Julie Seltzer and Sally Dennison, said to me right before she came into the room, they said, okay, this next girl, she's really good. Um, we think you should take her seriously. She really, really, really wants to play Veronica. And I said, why are you telling me that? Veronica's cast. Mm -hmm. we, you know, we have Winona. Does she know that? And they said, yes, she knows that, but they want, she and her people want you to know that she really wants to play Veronica. I said, okay, good. You know, let's, let's bring her in. She came in and she read, she played Heather Duke. She might've read Heather Duke. She might've read Heather Chandler. I don't know. She read one of the parts. I thought she was terrific. I said, oh yeah, this, this girl's great. She's going to fit in this movie. I'd love to cast her. I obviously can't cast her as Veronica. So let's offer her Heather Duke. And she took the, took the part. I prayed for the death of Heather Chandler many times. And I felt bad every time I did it, but I kept doing it anyway. Now I know you understood everything. Praise Jesus. Hallelujah. Shannon was even younger than Winona. She was, I think she turned 16 when we made the film. And she had been on Our House and Little House in the Prairie. So... Maybe she went on to do a guest spot in house because she's supposed to in house. <laughs> anyway, she she had had a TV career doing these kind of wholesome family things. And um I don't know what she thought she was getting into. She said she loved the script and she was she was game to do everything that was on the page. She caused me a moderate amount of grief during the shooting. <laughs> she she had a I think she thought of herself as more of a star than anybody else in in the show because she'd done these TV series series and so um but you know she I think she did a great performance I was always really really happy with what she did mm -hmm. and uh, and the only thing what I really remember is that she was so used to doing television where she would hit her marks and say her lines and do everything as called on I would say to her yeah yeah I I don't want that I don't want the perfect performance just like you know throw out all those things and let loose a little bit, which she never quite understood. She, she was young. She would look at me like, well, how can you, 
how can you tell me that what I just did was perfect, but it's too perfect? <laughs> you know, I say, just keep going, you know. Uh, but um, it's true. She she was very upset when she saw the film. I don't know why. I don't know if it's that she w didn't get what the movie was or she was unhappy because Winona did such a great job, you know. Uh, <laughs> maybe she didn't like what she did. I I don't know. I, I didn't have a whole lot of contact with uh, Shannon afterwards. And she did eventually come around and speak positively about the movie. But when it was first released, I think she, I, if I remember right, and I don't think it made any difference to us, really, is that she just didn't really want to have anything to do with it, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, of course, the other star to emerge from it is, uh, is Christian Slater, who uh, makes a huge impact. I mean, yeah. uh, who could ever forget his role in this? And um, the, just the greetings and salutations when, you know, that's his opening line to her. And uh, I remember used to do, like, my imitation of him as Jack Nicholson doing great, but it's, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. it really kind of just all like fades because it's one is so much like Jack Nicholson. Then who, who is doing who at that point? Yeah. But, but um, tell me a bit about how you found Christian and, um, and you know, was it a hard part to cast or how many guys did you look at? Oh, it was a really hard part to cast. I mean, we did, we did read a lot of guys. Um, I think word got out that it was a good role. And so a lot of the young actors that were out there who weren't quite yet stars, but, but were good, came in to read. Um, and I, years later, I heard from other act, for actors I didn't, wasn't even aware of who went on to have good careers said, you know, I came in and read for that. I was like, oh, I don't remember. Um, Anyone iconic that we would be uh, like, wow. Well, Matthew Perry told me. Uh, <laughs> he said, oh, I wanted that role so badly, I came in and read. Um, Brad Pitt showed up for the, this is i've told the story a lot people know this but that we did a table read of the movie before it was cast before it was fully green lit we did a just a casual table read and uh, brad pitt came in and read, read jd because wow. he was friends with a friend and he he gave a completely cold reading of the script he hadn't read it before he showed up he just sat down read it around the table and i have i have an audio cassette of that no which, kidding yeah which is funny i um you know and he you know he did a pretty good job for somebody who's just like walking into a room reading that particular script you know a bunch of good actors came in and read but none of them did anything that that i thought was right for the role it was strange you know either they were way like overacting it because it, it was kind of an overwrought part but my point was, no, pull pull away from all that. Don't do it that way. And even in the auditions, working with actors, they, they had a hard time. The younger guys had a hard time finding that the, the way to play the character as a real person. The interesting thing about Christian is he, he did that sort of Jack Nicholson-influenced read the first time he read for us. <laughs> uh -huh. And I thought, well, that's strange. But <laughs> I, at, at that point, I realized that the girls who came in to read for that for the female parts were pretty sophisticated for the most part and it may be that uh, you know the cliche is that that uh you know girls mature faster than boys and i will inject at this point that to your credit you wanted actual teens you did not want actors in their 20s playing teens right very important to me that this was a reaction also to the john hughes movies where there were 25 year olds playing teenagers and yes they looked young and nobody complained but i thought the thing, there's something very particular about 
a real teenager. They are a child still, mm -hmm. but they've got elements of an adult in them. You can tell the difference. When you look at a 16-year-old and you look at a 20-year-old, there is a difference. Mm -hmm. and, and I felt like this movie would be far more effective and much, much better if I could get real teenagers to play the part. So Winona was 16. It was fantastic. Um, Shannon was 15. It was perfect. Christian, 19. You know, he was still a teenager. Uh, Kim Walker, I think, was 18. And uh, Lizanne Falk, who played uh, Heather McNamara, was a little older. She was in her early 20s, but we really liked her, and her reading was great. So, um, but no, I was looking for teenagers. And, uh, and that meant none of those John Hughes kind of actors, not that they would have done it. Those guys were all stars, but mm -hmm. we didn't want that. I mm -hmm. totally didn't want that. But um, yeah, act, a lot of actors came in and they really wanted the role. They saw that it was something to do, but their readings were terrible. I mean, I just thought they were terrible. And so we were scratching our heads going, what are we going to do? We had a pretty good read from Donovan Leach, who was uh, you know, a young actor kind of building a career at the time. He, he was good. There was, I remember there was another kid named Kevin Hardesty who ends up with, he's got one line in the film, but he was a total unknown, hadn't done anything. He gave a great reading, but we didn't think it was necessarily perfect. And um, Christian came in and Christian's reading was really good. The Nicholson thing was a question. I also noticed that a lot of the young actors, they were imitating somebody. Unlike the girls who just played the roles, the it felt like all the young male actors had to have some sort of model in mind, some, right. you know, somebody that they were imitating, which was really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I talked to Christian about it and I said, you know, what is this Jack Nicholson sort of thing you're doing? He goes, <laughs> well, two things uh, to his credit. One, he said, when he looked at all the actors out there who'd done really good jobs at dark comedy, he kept defaulting to Nicholson. So Nicholson was the only one who had done this sort of thing and pulled it off. And then he pointed out, which is true, he has voice is just like Jack Nicholson's anyway. <laughs> this is how I talk. This is how I talk. That's what he said. This is how I talk. And, you know, uh, I couldn't argue with that because that actually was how he talked. Um, so, you know, there were some times when uh, I tried delicately to pull away from it if it felt like he was doing a Nicholson thing. Um, but, you know, I also said, let's go with this. He's, he seems to really be doing a great job with the role, which I think he did. And it's also really ballsy to be like, I'm doing Jack Nicholson and <laughs> I yeah. dare you to object. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it worked for him. It made him a star. Yeah. What are you talking about, huh? I mean, today was great. Chaos was great. Chaos is what killed the dinosaurs, darling. Face it, our way is the way. I mean, we scare people into not being assholes. Our way is not our way. Oh, yeah. Tell that to the judge, all right? Tell it to Kurt Kelly. Oh, God, Veronica. I'm telling it to you. I, I feel really certain that there was nobody else who came in to read that, based on the readings that I saw, would have done anything anywhere near as good as what Christian did. Yeah, he like Winona, he seemed to get the material and get what the tone needed to be to sell it. Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, I, I mean, Winona was, she was very articulate and she was very self-aware and we could talk about that sort of stuff. Christian, a little bit less so, but he, and he had a very tough job. I mean, he had a lot of language to process to to do that role and he you know it was it was tough he did well he did very well with it
And they looked very good together, I would say. They did. I, I remember we did a, a chemistry read when we, you know, we were getting down to the wire and, and we um, put them together in a room. And it was like, okay, we're good. We're good. This will work. Mm, thank you. That was my uh, first game of strip croquet. You're welcome. It's a lot more interesting than just flinging off your clothes and boning away on a neighbor's swing set. Mm, well, there's a lot to be said for throwing off your... Ow! <laughs> a night. What a life. So you have this incredible film, uh, so many quotable moments in it. I mean, I, do you have a favorite line? I was taking notes, and all it was was just quotes that I remembered from having seen it originally. And, and you know, first of all, how very, you know, yeah. like, you know, I feel like th that line ended up becoming things like stop trying to make fetch happen and all these, like, these quotable teen movie things, you know, uh, so great. And then, you know, bulimia is so 87. I remember being such a shocking line. Grow up, Heather. Bulimia is so 87. But, of course, I had to quote it to all my friends. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck me gently with a chainsaw, I, I think, is now part of the popular lexicon. I don't think we even question where that came from. That was a favorite. That was <laughs> that was reading the script. You were like, oh, my God, is, we're going to have an actor actually say, Fuck me gently with the chainsaw. And, um, Just, Heather, why can't we talk to different kinds of people? Fuck me gently with the chainsaw. Do I look like Mother Teresa? Personally, I when when Shannon says, "Why are you pulling my dick, Veronica?" I, <laughs> I, I don't know because she delivered it without any. Th there was no affectation to it. It right. was like that's just what she was saying. I thought that it just cracked me up. Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Also, you know, I love my dead gay son. The oh. way that's delivered is really pretty great. My son's a homosexual, and I love him. I love my dead gay son. And there were things that never made it into the movie. I, I had a conversation with Dan once, and I made a reference to stained with loserness. <laughs> and and we looked at each other. I said, did we, we cut that out? And there was this whole thing about being stained with loserness, which I thought was <laughs> a great phrase. Right. And I, I think it never made the movie. We, I, I, don't, I, don't I don't think it's it. there. Um and there were, then there were other things in the very long version. I think that one of the characters kept saying, that's so turbo, which for, <laughs> for the late 80s was perfect. But it, that never made it into the film. <laughs> Again, you know, like now with all like kind of TikTok language and, and like Gen Z language, it, it, it's very similar to me. I don't know, they, you know, whatever they say, and I'm sure I'm not going to sound very cool right now, but <laughs> flex or whatever the, the new term is that everyone's saying is, is very similar, I feel, to the language, the way you captured language in this film. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask also about, you brought up the my dead gay son scene. Now, this film, as far as I'm understand it is was one of the first to really sort of satirize homophobia in a smart way um you know most of these comedies were were saying fag and faggot and um and that was the punchline right um this was very different uh could you talk about that at all well you know we 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 felt that this uh that kind of accepted homophobia was really offensive and that it was a great touch for 
Christian's for JD's character to target that, it just made it made the jocks even worse than they already were. And the irony of him choosing to kind of plant a fake homosexual relationship there when in fact all that broy kind of jock interaction was repressed homosexuality anyway. Totally. You know, um and they plant certain things on yeah. them to make them seem like a couple, which I thought was so funny. It's it very funny. It probably that would probably be offensive now, I guess, but at the time actually gays thought the movie was great. You know, th- there there was the response from the homosexual community, whatever that was was very positive because they got the joke and thought it was, uh, you know, funny the way we satirized homophobia. I don't know, today, you know, people are so, they're so afraid to step on any of these things right. and to offend anybody. You can't, you can't do this kind of humor now. Right. Um, uh, but, no, but very, very ahead of its time. And then the other thing that uh, occurred to me in rewatching it was uh, gun violence um, and and general violence. You know, it starts with uh, Christian's character pulling a gun on the two jocks and scaring them yeah. with blanks. And then, you know, the climax is with uh, potential blowing up of the whole school. Now, this all happened pre-Columbine. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just wondering if you have thoughts about where violence has gone in school. Well, yeah, I think it's awful. I mean, and I, I, I remember... The day after Columbine, I got a call from the New York Times. Did I want to comment? They left a message. <laughs> That's a and, heart-sinking uh, moment. And I was just horrified <laughs> right. because the thought that one of the first places they might turn to at that point was to me for a movie that I'd made many years before that, which as far as I knew had no direct influence on the Columbine guys. I, I don't know, but um, yeah, that, that was horrifying. That It is horrifying. Violence in schools is horrifying. We were not promoting violence in schools by any means. No, uh, but in a way you were predicting it. There's a nihilism yeah. here. Yes, there was a nihilism there in the in the attitude of JD, who was mm-hmm. seems very similar to a lot of the people that decide to just be completely destructive in their final moments. Um, Even in his look, doesn't he wear a black raincoat? And... He does. He wears a black duster. Um, yeah. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, I know that with Columbine, I was I panicked when I when I heard about this because I would have felt, you know, terrible thinking that that anything in this movie actually inspired anybody to violence, and um, uh, in fact, the Columbine guys, I was told at the time, well, no, they they were they wore black duster coats, in they were imitating Jim Carroll, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but anyway, this whole idea that. I, I certainly, the question of the relationship between violence in movies and violence in real life is extremely complicated. And I've always fallen in on the side of there's nobody who actually commits a violent act, really kills somebody just because they saw something in a movie. That's what I've always felt. Now I don't even know anymore because the cumulative effect of seeing a lot of violence that desensitizes cannot be good, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I, I think I've been very careful in more recent years in using violence in movies, although I did a lot of True Blood, which was very violent, um, but it was a different kind of violence. Right. It was fangs and things. It's not, um, explosives. Yeah. I mean, the the sad fact is, is that human beings are predatory and they kill each other and they, and, you know, anything horrible that one person can do to another, they will do. And that's super depressing. 
but it's also a reality. So um, when you make movies that depict violence, you do have to ask yourself the question, are you glorifying it in any way that might lead some confused person to take it as a, an invitation to commit actual violence? Uh, you know, I generally feel like, no, it's vicarious. If you watch something on screen, it allows you to experience some of those violent um, fantasies and and probably keeps you from doing it. But God knows. I mean, that that's the thing is that today you couldn't make Heathers because there has been so much really horrifying violence done in schools. Right. And, and that was not the case then. Right. You know. Um, and it was many years before that became the case. Right. So, uh, yeah, uh, it was complicated. It's complicated. But um, one of the things that, you know, the the one issue we had with Steve White at New World is that he made us change the ending. Because in the original ending, the, uh, J.D. blew up the school. Right. And there was a prom in heaven. <laughs> and um, we liked that. You know, we thought that was a good end because it was not in any way a cop-out. You know, it didn't say everything's going to be fine. It said everything's not going to be fine. And that, Dan and I both felt that that was a, that was a good message to put out there. <laughs> um, and, and Steve White said to us, he said, look, I'm not going to make a movie that satirizes the response to teen suicide and deals with all these heavy, complicated issues and then has the basically the two main characters kill themselves. He said, you make that movie and then one person kills themselves and it's on you. And I said, ah, you know, I, I don't agree with that. But uh, at the same time, I don't want anybody to kill themselves because of what they see in, in a movie that I've made. And he wasn't going to be convinced of, uh, of anything anyway. So we changed the ending. But now, you know, in retrospect, you say, did, did that movie feed anybody's violent tendencies? Did it lead to any school violence? I certainly hope not, because, you know, we were not in any way um, endorsing that. Um, and so, of course, in the the changed ending, uh, you have Christian's character uh, de detonating himself and um, uh, causing. Uh, um, uh, you have Winona on the school steps and that iconic look with the, the the soot all over her face, and then this long ash, the longest ash since The Shining, I think, <laughs> um, to hit the the silver screen, and um, just a great moment there. And then kind of a sweet ending with with uh, Martha dump truck riding her little scooter uh, around uh, Winona. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm good with that ending. It's not as dark as what Dan originally wrote and what we were originally planning on shooting, but... Um, yeah, and she's the new queen bee, and I don't know, it's, it kind of wraps it up in a good way, better than... Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not a cop-out ending. It's just not as dark as what we originally went for. And so the movie comes out, and, you know, what what's the reception? What, what are people saying? Uh, well, it was mostly good. You know, we got a lot of good reviews. Uh, I can quote all the bad reviews. I can't quote any of the good ones. This is what happens when you make something that goes out in the world. Who? Well, did Roger Ebert give it a bad review? He gave it a tepid bad review. Pauline Kael gave it a pretty much, you know, I don't see what the fuss is all about kind really? of Really? I would think she would get it. Yeah, you would, you would think and you would hope. Elvis Mitchell hated it wrote the meanest review of all time for the L.A. Weekly. Huh. Um, Sheila Benson, who was the lead critic for the L.A. Times, hated it. Um, 
But I love that you remember all, and you're calling them all out. <laughs> well, I'm not calling. I can call no, them out. I, I respect their reviewers. You know, they should say what they think. They're all wrong. Yeah. yeah. Do, do, I, thought, I thought they were wrong at the time. <laughs> but at the same time, that's what their job is, you know. And so but it, yeah, it is really funny. I learned the hard way with my first film. Thankfully, I had a lot of good reviews to point to. But I realized that if you make this stuff. You want people to like it. You, even if you're doing something that is deliberately intended to incite people, right. you want them to like it. And if they don't, you go, oh, you know, shit, I'll never get, <laughs> I'll never get those words out of my he head that I read, you know, talking about how bad my movie was. <laughs> <laughs> but, but people did like it mostly. And, um, and then I know I saw it in the theater. I don't remember which theater, but I know I saw it in the theater and was blown away. And then of course it had a whole second life uh, as the, the studio had hoped on DVD. Yeah. You know, New World went out of business the week basically in the weeks that we were opening in theaters. So the movie was finished and it played at the Sundance Festival, which was not this, you know, it was early days of the Sundance Festival. It was the same year that Soderbergh's Sex, Lies, and Videotapes was, Sex, Lies, and Videotape was, was there. So it was no one were of the very first years. It was in competition or what, how was it involved? In no, the it was just screen. screening. Yeah. There was a guy named Tony Safford who programmed the festival mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, he great guy because he loved the movie. He, he loved the film, mm -hmm. and um, I do remember it was a very interesting experience to go to Sundance because I was really excited. You know, I thought, oh my god, I, I made this movie that I thought would be viewed as some sort of teen exploitation film for New World <laughs> Pictures, and it's going to this film festival. And when I showed up at the festival and checked in at the at the desk, the guy said, "Oh, yeah, you you made that film." I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "A lot of people are really pissed off with you." <laughs> And I said, what? You know, what did I do? And he said, well, uh, Tony Safford likes the movie and he puts you in good theaters and good screening times. And a lot of people are really pissed off. So the response at Sundance was it was pretty good. But there were a lot of people, and I knew people because I'd been around a little bit. I was young, but I'd, I'd worked for Coppola. I'd worked around a bit. I remember a lot of people at the festival were angry. They said, this doesn't belong in, in Sundance. Sundance is to celebrate independent filmmaking. You made a commercial film. You made a teen it's movie. It's too commercial. It's too commercial. <laughs> you and can't was, win. Yeah, I was like, no, come on, you guys. This thing is, you know, <laughs> this is a, it's meant to be very subversive. And um, But we did get some good response. And it was great that it played there. I was extremely uh, happy about that. But I did get a lot of sideways glances and a lot of nasty stuff from people that I vaguely knew. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that was an interesting experience as well. Um, the critics generally liked the movie quite a bit when it came out. I'm sure in today's world it would get a, you know, Metacritic score or, you know, Rotten Tomatoes score that would be reasonably good. Um, but there were people who didn't like it. And, uh, and the weekend we were released, New World had basically gone out of business. And we were the last movie that they released. Wow. And I remember going to the head of distribution who was, he worked in that exploitation arena. He tried so hard to get us to change the title. He said, you can't release a movie called Heathers. And then they released it overseas as um, 
lethal attraction, <laughs> you know, a combination of lethal weapon and fatal attraction. And, and I said to him, I said, you can't do this. You can't release this movie's lethal attraction. Right. He said, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. You don't know anything about releasing movies overseas. Get out of my office. <laughs> and, and so I went to him and I said, you got this movie. It's got all these great reviews. There's no ad in the New York Times or the LA Times, which in those days, you know, people still read newspapers. I said, you, you're not supporting this film. And he goes, oh, don't be ridiculous. Of course there's an ad. And I said, show it to me. And I handed him the New York Times and the LA Times, and he pretended to open it up. And he went, oh, gee, you're right. I guess some somebody must have made a mistake, oh you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, so... Basically, it got very little support in the theaters, but it played in limited release in the big cities and did good business. The theaters were packed for a few weeks. And then it became a word-of-mouth hit, on a uh, cult hit on uh, on video and DVD. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people have seen it. And then you went on to some classic TV. Uh, I could do other episodes about the TV you've done, including Larry Sanders' show, and um, you did The Comeback, one of my favorite shows. Yeah, that was and good one. Um, you've done some fantastic TV work. But um, your uh, first thing after you did uh, Heather's, uh, did you, do you want to talk about it? We, I mean, we don't have to go deeply into <laughs> it, but it is a, a, a moment of Hollywood history as well. Uh, I'm assuming you're talking about Hudson Hawk. Yes. That, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, because I did do another movie in between called Meet the Applegates, which was oh. uh, another very, that was even conceived before, before Heather's. And it's a very odd movie about giant insects from Brazil coming to the United States. Oh, wow. Um, it's an odd one. You can't, I don't think you can see it anywhere. <laughs> oh, that sounds good, though. But yeah, it has, uh, Redbeard Simmons wrote it with me. and uh, Good old Redbeard. Yeah, got back yeah, together. yeah, we were working together. <laughs> it, uh, so anyway, yeah, Hudson Hawk was an experience. It was a, an interesting Hollywood experience, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, you had, and wasn't it also written by... Well, yes, it was written by Dan Waters. The the movie, when I got involved with it, by the way, Joel Silver, you know, the, who produced all these big uh, right. blockbuster hits, had seen Heathers, and I guess Bruce Willis had seen Heathers, and they both said, we got to work with these guys who did that. Amazing. Yeah, so Dan did rewrites on um, Demolition Man. It did some very good stuff on Demolition Man, actually. And he he did he wrote Ford Fairlane, the um, uh -huh. Andrew Dice Clay movie, right. and Dan also did um, Batman Returns with Tim. Classic, yes. But um, I was called in by Joel to look at this script for Hudson Hawk, which was written by Steve D'Souza, who was an extremely well written uh, kind of adventure action adventure comedy that. I thought was fine, but not really what I wanted to do. And I said, well, I'll do this if I can turn the tables on this kind of genre and make a much more unusual version of this. And I'd like to bring Dan Waters in to do a revision. And Joel and Bruce were fine. That's great. And we did that. And that was a huge mistake because the movie was, you know, generally, it was very badly received. It was ridiculed. It was given terrible reviews. And in spite of the fact that I think there's a lot of good stuff in that film. Right. Uh, and it has now kind of a cult following. Right. As, you know, as they always do. As right? they do. But you know, you you don't, you certainly don't want to have a cult following because it's so bad that it's good. Uh, <laughs> right. I like those movies, but I didn't really want to make one. And I always wonder to what degree even the cult following for that is is based on that. However, I've seen the movie recently. It screens every once in a while. And Dan and I went and and 
spoke at a screening, and it is, boy, that movie's way ahead of its time, I'll tell you that, all in right. terms of the, the humor and the approach to the action genre and all that. So There I, you uh, go. It's time to give Hudson Hawk a re, uh, another look. Yeah, you know, it, every once in a while, somebody sees it and writes one of those reviews that says, this isn't anywhere near as bad as we thought it was. Right. <laughs> um, and I'll just leave you with one question. Have you seen Bodies, Bodies, Bodies? Not yet. I plan to see it. It, it, it has... Um, I don't know, a certain essence that it reminded me of Heather's in that it's mocking current um, teen trends, um, but in a very subversive way. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. I think it's going to go on as as a movie that's, um, I don't know if about a classic, but a, at least a cult classic. Oh, yeah, good. I've, I've read about it. I've seen that it's out there. I keep saying that's a movie I really want to see. Has it opened yet? Is it Yeah, available? it's been around for a while and yeah. actually became, you know, the subject kind of of a controversy because uh, a woman in the New York Times gave it a very bad review and talked about how it's an advertisement for cleavage, which it absolutely is not. It was a very weird way to attack it. And then that became a back and forth with uh, one of the stars so that like kind of blew up twitter for a few days but um <laughs> but she got she got it wrong she, she she definitely got it wrong uh i think it's a really great film so i would encourage people oh, yeah. to see it if they haven't seen uh bodies 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 yet well michael i mean this has been unbelievably exciting thank you so much i love heathers it is definitely a classic um, if, if anyone out there has not seen it go on amazon right now and watch heathers you'll love it uh, a real pleasure to have you here thank you so much it's a pleasure to talk to you well that was highly entertaining one of the favorite films of my youth to really get behind the scenes and look under the hood of Heathers. If you've never seen it or it's been a while, I encourage you to go check it out. It's streaming for free to Amazon Prime subscribers, and I believe it's also on the Roku channel. So um, go pop some popcorn and watch Heathers. Now, next week, we're doing something very different. Uh, we're not doing a film or TV show. We're doing a book series. That's right, a book series. Which book series? Choose your own adventure. These were book series that uh, really captivated me as a, as a kid. And they kind of, in many ways, anticipated a lot of stuff in terms of interactive narratives that you see in video games and uh, on the Netflix one-time experiment, Bandersnatch, which I thought was a lot of fun. And it basically follows the same format as Choose Your Own Adventure. So if titles like The Cave of Time or Who Killed Harlow Thrombey mean anything to you, I think you'll really enjoy next week's episode with the creator of Choose Your Own Adventure, Edward Packard. That's right. He's 92, and he came and joined us for an amazing episode. So your homework this week, read a Choose Your Own Adventure book or watch Bandersnatch, and we'll see you right here, same place, same time. And until then, we'll see you in Hollywood. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.